Chapter Twenty, Part Two of the Fairy Tales of Science by John Cargill Brogue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Wonderful Lamp Continued. Let us now glance at another marvelous product of science, which rivals all the magical fabrics described in the Arabian Nights. We refer to the Britannia Bridge across the Manai Straits. The deep chasm which separates the Isle of Anglesey from the mainland had long been a serious obstacle to the modern Aladdin, who could not brook the delay which attended the use of ferry-boats. He could not rest satisfied until he had bridged over the intervening strip of sea, and he therefore summoned the potent genii of the lamp, who helped him to form a magical roadway in mid-air. This cobweb-like structure is known as the Suspension Bridge of Telford. In course of time, however, Aladdin began to wish for a more substantial fabric, across which he might urge his steam-drawn chariot. To obtain such a bridge as he desired, he sought the aid of a potent magician, who had long been famed for his power over the genii of the lamp. In plain language, a railway bridge across the Manai Straits was required, and its construction was left to Mr. Robert Stevenson. The seven labors of Hercules were insignificant tasks compared with that which the railway authorities set before the great engineer, perfectly satisfied that he would accomplish it by some means or other. Yet the difficulties which Stevenson had to contend with seemed insurmountable, and a less daring genius would have shrunk from encountering them. Those captive princesses of fairy lore who were doomed to draw water from a well without a bucket, to catch fish without a net, and to spin a thread without either wheel or distaff, were not more unfortunately situated than was Robert Stevenson, though he has never yet been made the hero of a romantic story. "'You must build a bridge,' said his employers, "'that the heaviest trains may pass over in safety at any speed. This bridge may have any form you please, but we wish you to remember that its rupture would be attended with most disastrous consequences, and we therefore urge upon you the necessity of making it strong enough to resist every strain.' "'If you build a railway bridge across the Straits,' said the Lords of the Admiralty, "'you must not interfere with the navigation. Your viaduct must be at least one hundred feet above the level of the water, so that ships may pass beneath, and it must be constructed without the aid of scaffolding.' Even the elements seem to set their face against the proposed bridge. The Straits are above twelve miles in length, the shores throughout being rocky and precipitous. The water that fills the passage is never at rest, and the fall of the tide is from twenty to twenty-five feet. Moreover, the wind blows through the straits with such violence that a bridge must be strong indeed to withstand its rude shocks. Imagine an enchanted engineer with such a task before him as the construction of a bridge a hundred feet above the tumultuous waters without scaffolding of any kind, and you will be able to get a faint idea of the difficulties which he had to overcome before a railway train could pass from Carnarvon to Anglesley. We will not allude to the various plants which Stevenson conceived and discarded before the idea of a tubular bridge took possession of his mind. This last project, destined to prove so successful, has been well compared to a beam along which a man scrambles when escaping from a fire. Stevenson was bent upon crossing the straits, but as he could not build an ordinary bridge, when under such extraordinary restrictions, he resolved to span the waters with a huge makeshift in the shape of a hollow beam of iron. Each tube of the Britannia Bridge is literally a beam, so constructed 
that it combines the maximum of strength with the minimum of weight. In other words, it is a beam from which every portion of metal that does not add to its strength has been carefully removed. We will now endeavor to explain the simple principle upon which a beam, whether of wood or iron, is enabled to support the weight imposed upon it. For want of a few moments' reflection, most people, in looking up at a common ceiling girder, consider that its upper and lower parts suffer equally in bearing the weight of the roof. But these upper and lower strata suffer from causes as diametrically opposite to each other as the climates of the pole and of the equator. The top of the beam throughout its whole length suffers from severe compression, the bottom from severe extension, and thus, while the particles of the one are violently jammed together, the particles of the other are on the point of separation. In short, the difference between the two is precisely that which exists between the opposite punishments of vertically crushing a man to death under a heavy weight and of horizontally tearing him to pieces by horses. This theory, confused as it may appear in words, can at once be simply and most beautifully illustrated by any small straight stick freshly cut from a living shrub. In its natural form, the bark or rind around the stick is equally smooth throughout, but if the little bough, held firmly in each hand, be bent downwards so as to form a bow, or in other words, to represent a beam under heavy pressure, two opposite results will instantly appear. The rind in the center of the upper part of this stick will be crumpled up, while that on the opposite side will be severely distended, thus denoting, or rather demonstrating, what we have stated, namely, that beneath the rind the wood of the upper part of the stick is severely compressed, while that underneath is as violently stretched. Indeed, if we continue to bend the bow until it breaks, the splinters of the upper fracture will be seen to interlace or cross each other, while those beneath will be divorced by a chasm. But it is evident on reflection that these opposite results of compression and extension must, as they approach each other, respectively diminish in degree, until in the middle of the beam, termed by mathematicians its neutral axis, the two antagonistic forces, like the celebrated Kilkenny cats, destroy each other. It therefore appears that the main strength of a beam consists in its power to resist compression and extension, and that the middle is comparatively useless, so that to obtain the greatest amount of strength, the given quantity of material to be used should be accumulated at the top and bottom, where the strain is greatest, or, in plain terms, the middle of the beam, whether of wood or iron, should be bored out. All iron girders, all beams in houses, in fact all things in domestic or naval architecture that bear weight, are subject to the same law. A hollow beam of iron having been fixed upon as the form which the projected bridge should take, an extensive series of experiments were undertaken with a view to ascertain the shape capable of sustaining the greatest weight. A rectangular tube, with a height considerably greater than its breadth, and strengthened at the top and bottom, was eventually selected. The genii of the lamp were now set to work, and the quiet folk of North Wales witnessed similar wonders to those which have since astonished the Londoners. The principal tubes were constructed on piles at high-water mark, and were formed of wrought iron plates riveted together with white-hot iron bolts. A system of longitudinal tubes or cells gave the required strength to the top and bottom of each fabric, these cells being quite as effectual as solid metal. Every means was taken to make the tubes as light as possible, 
as it was known that the strength of the bridge depended on its lightness. This fact sounds rather paradoxical, but if the reader will reflect a moment, he will find that a bridge has to support itself, as well as the things passing over it. A beam of solid iron, of the dimensions of the Britannia Bridge, would be useless if placed across the straits, as it would infallibly break down under the enormous pressure of its own weight. Stevenson's beam, as we have already intimated, has all the elements of strength, but none of the elements of weakness of a common beam. While the monster tubes were being constructed, the masons were heaping up sandstone and marble into the huge piers upon which they were to rest. The central pier or tower was built upon a little rock in the middle of the stream. This rock, which was only exposed at low water, had long been a trouble to sailors and nothing else, but it is now world-famous as the Britannia Rock, the chief support of Stevenson's magic aerial galleries. Two other piers were constructed, one on the Anglesey and the other on the Carnarvon shore, each at a distance of 472 feet from the Britannia Tower. The bridge was to consist of two tubes placed side by side, one for the down and the other for the up trains. Each tube was formed in four lengths, and when completed, these lengths had to be joined together like the pieces of a huge dissected puzzle. A huge puzzle, indeed. When these immense tubes were finished, how could they be thrown across the straits a hundred feet above the level of the water? The reader will open his eyes in astonishment when we inform him that the four principal tubes, each 472 feet in length, were floated into the center of the strait, and then pumped up to their present elevated position. Said we not that science had brought the powers of nature under man's control, that the genii of the lamp had become the willing slaves of the modern Aladdin? Each tube was supported on pontoons, huge life-boys, if you will, and dragged from its resting place by chains connected with a monster windlass stationed on the opposite bank. This operation was performed at high tide, and when the water sank, the delighted spectators beheld the tube resting in its proper position, between its two towers. We need scarcely say that we refer to the direction of the tube, but not to its height, when we here speak of its proper position. The mass of iron had yet to be lifted high into the air. Among the genii of the lamp there is one called fluid pressure, and to this power the task of raising the tubes was committed. The hydraulic press gave direction to the mighty efforts of this genie. This engine consists essentially of a strong metallic cylinder, in which is inserted a solid piston or ram and a pump, by means of which water can be forced into the main cylinder. Many of these machines were employed in raising the different lengths of the bridge, but one of them deserves particular mention on account of its stupendous magnitude. The cylinder of this cyclopean engine was nine feet long, twenty-two inches in internal diameter, ten inches thick, and weighed fifteen tons. Allowing for the waste, twenty-two tons of fluid incandescent iron were required for this enormous casting. After having been left for seventy-two hours in the mold in which it was cast, the mold was detached from it. It was still red-hot. It was then left to cool, but it was ten days before it was sufficiently cool to be approached by operatives well inured to heat, in order to detach from it some of the sand of the mold which still adhered to it. This vast machine was fixed upon an iron stage, near the summit of one of the towers, and to the crosshead of the ram were attached massive chains which descended to the level of the water 
and embraced the tube to be raised. The greatest weight lifted by the press was 1144 tons, but it was capable of raising 2,000 tons. The quantity of water injected into the great cylinder in order to raise the ram six feet was 81.5 gallons. When a lift of six feet was effected, the lifting chains were seized by a set of clamps under the lowest point to which the crosshead descended, and while they were thus held suspended, the water was discharged from the great cylinder, and the ram, with its crosshead, made to descend. Meanwhile, the lengths of chain above the clamps were removed, and the chains, thus shortened, attached to the crosshead by other clamps, and all was prepared for another lift. In the practical operation of the machine, each lift of six feet occupied from thirty to forty-five minutes. The towers were formed of three massive piers of solid masonry, so that each tube just filled up the space between the inner and an outer pier. As the tubes were elevated by the action of the press, the vacant spaces beneath were closely packed with blocks of wood. It was very fortunate that this course was adopted, as an accident occurred, which must have resulted in the destruction of one of the tubes, had the packing process been omitted. The water contained in one of the presses, not content with lifting the tube, thought fit to make a display of its power by thrusting the bottom out of the cylinder, thereby killing an unfortunate workman. The monster tube fell one inch, but was prevented from falling any further by the packing beneath. Had it fallen six feet, it would have been shivered into atoms. When all the tubes were elevated to their permanent position, the great work was completed and Aladdin gazed at the new wonder with delighted eyes. These aerial galleries, nearly fifteen hundred feet in length, are marvelously strong, each being capable of bearing, spread over its whole surface, the enormous weight of four thousand tons, a weight nine times greater than it can ever be required to sustain. The hollow beam is not deflected more than an inch from the horizontal line by the passage of the heaviest luggage train, and it is scarcely affected at all by the highest wind. The enchanted engineer, whom we whilom saw beset with difficulties of no ordinary kind, can now point to the twin tubes across the Manai Straits and say proudly, My task is performed. The bridge has been constructed without scaffolding, and little Mona is no longer separated from her mighty sister. We need scarcely say that Mr. Stevenson is treated quite as badly as the ogre-guarded princess, for no sooner has he performed one task then the ogre, called nineteenth century, finds him another still more impossible to all appearances than the last. Let us not forget that although the human mind can plan a Britannia bridge or a great eastern, the human hands could never construct such wonderful fabrics without the assistance of those mighty powers of the material world which man by industry and patient observation has succeeded in enslaving. Steam, heat, light, electricity, Indeed, every agent that is known to exert power in the natural world can be made to labor in the world of art. These forces, then, are the genii that attend the lamp of science. This lamp, like that of Aladdin, must be rubbed before the genii will appear. In plain language, science will not reveal its mighty powers unless the student works diligently. Our artist has pictured the lamp of science as a luminous hand. What is the meaning of this curious emblem? Reflect for a moment, and you will detect a deep truth hidden in this fancy. Science, dear reader, is the magical hand that points out truth and strikes down falsehood. And more than that, 
it is the magical hand which fashions the crude materials of the world in objects of beauty which constructs and moves all kinds of machinery which performs herculean feats of strength and executes works of marvellous delicacy but what has science to do with the wolf and the hog at the bottom of the emblem nothing indeed except to keep them out of mischief the wolf stands for the lawless man who preys upon his fellow mortals and lives by crime the hog for the ignorant glutton who wallows in the mire of indolence devouring everything that comes in his way we trust that these brutes in human form will one day become extinct and that the chains which depend from our wonderful lamp will be no longer needed at present however it is absolutely necessary to restrain the wolf from interfering with those who labor in the light of science and the hog from devouring their well-earned food having thus pointed a moral in the emblem that adorns our concluding tale we have now to bid the reader farewell an unpleasant task is this leave-taking dear reader we have journeyed together for some time and now we feel as though we were parting from an old friend we have treated you very rudely we fear we have dragged you hither and thither without once asking you whether you like such wandering habits we have led you through the ancient forests have soared with you to the confines of space have plunged with you into the sea and in fine have taken you everywhere we trust that you bear us no malice and will not think that time wasted which was spent in listening to our fairy tales of science the end end of chapter 20 end of the fairy tales of science